Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about President Obama's policies and the impact they've had and may have in the future on the state of Indiana. Joining us in the studio are School of Public and Environmental Affairs Professor David Audrich and Professor of Labor and Employment Law Ken Dauschmidt. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or one 877-285-9348. Our website is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Thank you. There's a lot of things we can talk about today, I'm sure, with uh, this is kind of a broad topic, President Obama's policies and the impact that they've had on the state. We're going to talk mainly about economic policies. Uh, and it, timing is uh, everything, mm-hmm. I guess. We have passage yesterday by the Senate of the Financial Regulatory Reform Bill and uh, that signals you know another land, lands, landmark kind of legislative victory for President Obama and apparently he'll sign that next week into law. What's uh, um, Ken? If I can start with you first, what, what's the impact of that bill going to be? Well, I I think it was a a good a good step. I I guess I wish it had been a little bit stronger than it than it was, but. Um, I think that uh, you know recent economic history and the panic in the financial markets suggested that we uh, we didn't have enough controls on certain aspects of the financial uh, industry and that some of our controls were out of date and I think that we that the the recent uh, bill tries to update that it's got a variety of provisions it's got uh, new monitoring it's got the financial stability oversight council it's got the consumer financial protection agency it's got stricter rules on hedge funds and private equity firms and uh, increased uh, requirements for capital reserves. So it does a lot of the things that – that uh, or it tries to stem some of the things that uh, led to the recent financial panic. You've got the uh, implementation of the Volcker rule too, which is the idea that it's going to limit uh, banks' abilities to make uh, speculative investments that don't benefit their customers. And mm-hmm. I think all of that uh, goes to try to stem – uh, um, the possibility of uh, future panics. Now, have they taken care of the entire problem? I don't think they have. And I think one thing we've learned uh, uh, from the recent past is that in the future, as new uh, economic developments occur, as new financial instruments uh, are developed, like the derivatives, we may need new regulations to deal with those. Um, it seems like the market tends to escape regulation. So even if you have a regulation that works for a while, you have to keep your eyes on it. And uh, um, if you just follow the rule that if it isn't broken, don't fix it, you guarantee that eventually it's going to break and then you're going to have to fix it. <laughs> right. yeah. So, so – uh, um, It seems like it's just a matter of time before those folks kind of figure out ways to outsmart this particular set of rules and then, yeah, it's time, time for a fresh one. You said something I wanted to follow up on. You said um, so that the banks can't make speculative investments that uh, don't benefit their customers. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Do you mean just don't make a profit or – I think some of the tr- most troubling aspects of the recent financial crisis were when uh, investment firms and bankers were – uh, encouraging people to buy um, uh, uh, um, instruments that they were actually betting against, and so the idea is, uh, you know, we could go back to completely limiting uh, banks from making uh, speculative investments entirely. I mean, the Volcker Rule modifies that. You can make investments that are consistent with your customers' interests, uh, um, uh, so that we don't get this conflict of interest. And that, I think I think that's common sense. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. This is a, I mean, a twenty three hundred page bill, from what I've, wow. I've read. So, uh, um, David, when you think about about you know you and me and Mary Catherine and Ken and Hoosiers who are sitting here, I mean, what what are we going to notice from this bill? Well, I think Ken actually touched on it that uh, subsequent to the crisis, uh, confidence crashed. Confidence uh, in the uh, consumers, confidence in the financial institutions, so that you, me, Ken, Mary Lou down the street, we actually had trouble getting loans. We had trouble getting loans to finance our, ho- our house loans, our cars, everything, because when confidence uh, gets shaken, people, institutions tighten up. Mm-hmm. The safe 
the safe thing to do is nothing. And that that confidence was shaken. Ken touched on this because of an incompatibility between the uh, instruments that were being used, really the innovations that had emerged in the financial sector that uh, a decade ago had actually been driving the competitive advantage of the country, the state to some degree um, and where a lot of our innovative activity was going. But the institutions, the regulations, the policies stayed static, didn't change, mm-hmm. didn't keep up with it. You got this kind of um, uh, incompatibility which led to the crisis and then confidence crashed. So as a consequence of these new uh, – the optimistic view because I have to confess <laughs> – uh, how many pages did you say that was? 2,300. I didn't read 2,300 pages last night. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> but the, 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 opti- the optimistic view though is that with a, uh, a, a renewed compatibility, confidence will, will uh, reemerge and it will be a lot easier for us to get loans for, to, to, do, to do business as usual. Mm-hmm. How much of this um, lack of keeping up – regulation keeping up with the market um, do you hold Alan Greenspan responsible for? Well, um, actually, I, I, um, I guess I wouldn't hold him personally responsible that much. I mean, he had, he had. I, I think he's been unfairly demonized. I mean, and in some ways, I think he was very, uh, very upfront to come up and admit that he had made some mistakes in the past. Uh, but I think, at least certainly at the time, uh, people didn't realize that those were mistakes. So he alone was not uh, certainly responsible for the regulation lagging behind. I think it was a larger systematic error. I mean, you have the problem of of the regulated capturing regulators and and lessening regulation that way. And we certainly saw that through the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then also just the problem that, that um, I mean, as David mentioned, these new derivatives in some ways were very creative and in some ways mm-hmm. served a useful purpose of getting money into the mortgage market. But the problem is, is that they were very complex and that they and that they were a new instrument that wasn't adequately regulated. And as a result, when we got this speculative bubble, as he as he mentioned, the, you know, and banks were left with these toxic assets. You had you had uh, the loss of confidence, which which brought the money supply just just uh, you know cre- crashing to a halt. Mm-hmm. And and the economy as a result, p- the larger economy, people who aren't responsible for this suffer because, as David pointed out, they can't get loans to run their business and work that was productive is no longer being done. Uh, and that's that's really what we're suffering from now. You know, I'm not going to hold Alan Greenspan responsible. I'm going to hold Ken responsible <laughs> because, I, in fact, it was Ken, myself, our colleagues, uh, friends in the academy at universities like this one, in the various disciplines. Uh, I don't have a sense. Maybe you do, Ken. That we really. I mean, this is really our job, mm-hmm. our mission, and it's what you started with, really. We need to be – not, re, not be in reactive mode uh, but really anticipating how are the, the changes, how the economy, different institutions how, – how this is now requiring changes of policy. I don't have a sense of, of that we were really uh, – I think we dropped the ball mm-hmm. as a uh, – as a, as a, uh, if you could say the, the intellectual sector, the university sector. Now I know jumping out of the, the woodwork – now it's all kinds of colleagues who said, "Oh, but I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I warned them." Mm-hmm. Turns out everybody knew this crisis was coming. <laughs> but in general, I think we had a very uh, 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 kind of a relaxed uh, approach that said, "Well, this relatively deregulated market, it's working pretty well." Just like the guy who jumps out of a fifty-story building, he's down to about the twentieth floor, and he says. Oh, this is not bad. So far, nothing's happened. <laughs> That's an interesting comparison, actually, because it calls to mind the Great Depression, which is um, arguably kind of a, a, a historical lesson that apparently we didn't learn from. So uh, that's uh, for someone who's not and you know doesn't do this for a living. It's kind of like, well, say, weren't, wasn't the handwriting on the wall here? Well, I think we did learn something from the Great Depression. Although, although I would agree with David that that uh, in some ways we are too, we, we we got too complacent. I mean, when I was a graduate student in economics, they would have said, uh, you know, the, the general tenor was this will never happen again because we know what to do if this starts to happen again. And the problem is, is we didn't anticipate, and I do, and I do think we responded, and actually we did stop the worst. 
I mean, we were staring at the abyss. I was thinking I'm going to lose my entire pension. My kids are never going to get jobs back in 2008. And that hasn't happened and I don't feel like that's going to happen now. So some confidence, at least at least my confidence has been restored. <laughs> but but um, uh, uh, it is true that, that uh, we got too complacent about it. The worst hasn't happened but, but we didn't anticipate that – a really serious, uh, you know, they're calling it the Great Recession, and I think that's that's an apt uh, dis- an apt description. A really serious economic slowdown did occur that that economists did not adequately uh, anticipate. Or, or you know, Ken, you know, just said, yeah, we did learn something, but maybe we learned the wrong lesson. We're a little bit like the French after World War One, who said. We're not going to let this happen again. So they built that famous line. What's it called? The magnate? Imaginal. Imaginal line, right? That would keep the Germans out. But they didn't realize because of innovations in military capabilities, the Germans did an end, round, uh, end run around it. Well, the lesson – and Ken alluded to this. The lesson we learned in economic policy is we'll have uh, uh, institutions – that can, uh, uh, if not prevent a Great Depression, can react quickly enough so that the mm-hmm. consequences are never so severe. But this, the, the, the times are so different. Uh, uh, the world's changed. The economy's changed. Everything's changed mm-hmm. so much that and I, I think this is how we've gotten in trouble. Most, prof- I think, for me, most fundamentally is yes. On the one hand, we've had these innovations in the, the financial institutions and in instruments that. Uh, was not in the regulations and institutions. But back during the Great Depression, we were a, uh, uh, an isolated economy, an isolated society. We're now uh, one country. We've actually become a relatively small country in a big world, in a global economy, so that the kind of stimulus pr- uh, uh, policies that are at the heart of Keynesian economics that worked then, they don't work the same way anymore. And I think this is the disappointment everybody feels. So, we're going to get back to that in a minute. Let me yeah, uh, give our phone ahead. number and we've got a phone call. So oh. let's go the uh, phone numbers first, 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. The website is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Before I go to Steve, I do want to thank you, David, for not blaming the media for uh, not <laughs> paying enough attention oh, to this. We're, we're, we're saving the big one for last. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I'm, sure, I'm sure there's enough blame to go around. All right. Steve's on the phone. Steve? Well, I can segue off what you just said because uh, my question is, I, I think if you blame the media, there's no we, – we get information from no one now. It seems to me that we uh, have this really strange paradox where there's so much information available and no one knows anything anymore. And so I'm curious if you would name very specific journalists or media outlets – that have been responsible and that whom you would ask your own children to turn to in the future. For example, I remember reading articles in the early 2000s in Harper's Magazine warning about a housing crisis. Are there other, are there specific journals, magazines, left-wing, right-wing, center that you would recommend that have been asking the hard questions? Because without the media, we know nothing. So I'm going to get offline and listen to your answer. All right. Thanks, Steve. Ken? I actually – I have an answer. I'm not sure it's a great answer. My, my son is an economist who actually – he just studied uh, – graduated undergraduate and he's working at the Fed. He just got a job as a research assistant at the, at the Federal Reserve in Washington. And I'm very glad to see him read The Economist. And I, I'm not sure that The Economist I, I, I anticipated what was going to happen. But I do think that they ask very good questions and they give very good analysis. And actually getting back to Dave's point, David's point, uh, uh, they do look at it from a global perspective now, which I think he's mm-hmm. absolutely right. Uh, both our, our fiscal policy and our monetary policy now is in this larger context uh, uh, that we have to take account of. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I very much like the, uh, the question from the caller because it really cuts to the chase that says, well, where can we find good analysis? And if academia, uh, uh, which pains me a little bit to uh, 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 admit maybe, dropped the ball or we weren't as, as uh, quick as we, we should have been in retrospect, uh, uh, where can somebody go to find analysis? I, first of all, Ken's answer, The Economist, yeah, that, that's, that's probably the best publication I know that just week in, week out – Having said that, Kevin also probably you – know, I, th- I think he said they didn't exactly uh, predict uh, uh, this crisis in the severity of it. Um, so it's a, it's a really tough question and I think in my mind uh, that's about as good an answer is, as there is. There is no one clear-cut voice or 
um, medium or, or journalistic source that I think is consistently on the ball. That's what creates I think a great opportunity for people who want to understand the world right now, understand the economy. It's wide open. The old ideas are – the old theories, old, old frameworks, they're, 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 they're useful but they're limited. They need to be reworked. So it's a uh, it's a great opportunity to get involved in this. As I read the Herald oh. Times every day. By Thank the you. Way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I appreciate it. That's the right answer. <laughs> and you comment frequently. So. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, as, as the world continues to change, though, uh, so rapidly, it seems that each generation is going to have their own lesson, economic lessons to learn that are completely unpredictable. At this, you know, for any of us sitting here talking about this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's that's really a truism, and I think we should never have thought that wasn't the case. That's what happened. It wasn't just the Great Depression. You know, when Ken started off saying, "Well, we needed new regulation, new policies, institutions to cope with the changing economy," that's been true consistently through American history. I mean, if you go back to the after the Civil War period, when we suddenly had the advent of a new beast called the corporation mm-hmm. and we got the trusts, things weren't working the way that many people thought. What do we see? New kinds of laws, policy, the Sherman mm-hmm. Act, Interstate Commerce Act mm-hmm. and so on. So that I don't think we've hit – there was a famous book, must have been about what, 1990-91, The End of History yes. by Francis yes. Fukuyama. Yeah. Well, I don't think we've hit the end of history and, and uh, uh, you know, Mary Catherine, that's, that's your point. No, we're not at them. So that each generation is going to have to uh, uh, find their own approach to take getting control of, of, of the economy. Actually, both David and I are looking at this a little bit too from a personal perspective. I've, I've had kids that are graduating, going on to jobs or law mm-hmm. schools or whatever and he, he was talking about his kids in college yeah. and it, it, it is um, – I mean it's both hope, – I'm both hopeful about it but also anxious because mm-hmm. uh, you're right that the, that, the, that the world has changed. My oldest son is interning in, in uh, Delhi, India this summer as a as – a, so he's looking at transnational law. Uh, there's no way – when I went to law school, there's no way I would have imagined ever working in India or with a firm that had anything to do with India. Uh, um, I already mentioned my other son working in Washington and, and my my youngest uh, – my daughter is uh, in education. So we're looking at uh, you know the layoffs for the teachers and all this and thinking, geez, you know, I hope there's a job for her in, mm-hmm. in four sure. years. Yeah. 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 But, but the implications are both the causes of economic distress, therefore social distress, but also probably the solutions are going to be – Maybe not fundamentally different, but quite a bit differently. So we need it needs to be modified. It needs to fit the times. That's actually the opportunity. And I think you know, Mary Catherine, that's probably the biggest uh, biggest uh, uh, advertisement you could you could give why it's so important for young people to come to universities like this one, try to equip themselves as, as well as possible. But they're also going to have to be creative, be innovative, come up with new approaches. We need all the great minds we can get looking at these issues. Yep. Yeah. We have three calls waiting to uh, talk to us. Carl's first. Carl? Carl, go ahead. Yes. I wonder if you can tell me what laws were changed from the 1930s until the present. Uh, as I understand it, the rules that were put in place after the Great Depression have been removed. Which of those laws changed to allow investment banks to become banks, number one, and number two, if you look at the experience with uh, long-term capital management, that was a hedge fund that traded in derivatives that failed, and the federal government demanded that the banks come in and bail it out. So we should have known then in the 90s that derivatives were going to cause problems, that there was a policy then to regulate derivatives by the uh, Futures Trading Commission headed by Brooksley Bourne. So, number one, what laws were changed from the 1930s to the present? And number two, why didn't we look at the problem that we saw in the 90s when long-term capital management failed? All right. Who wants to – can you want to handle that? There, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to cite you all the, all the chapter and verse on that. But, but it is true that, that – um, some of the regulations that went into the uh, – uh, uh, in the Great Depression, uh, one thing that we did was we guaranteed uh, savings accounts to prevent runs on banks. We also prevented uh, um, banks from making certain investments 
that we felt were too speculative and would and would uh, be destabilizing on banks that would once again prevent uh, runs on banks. And during the Great Depression, we had we had uh, with the collapse of the stock market, we had uh, the banks collapse and we had a collapse of the money supply, which once again caused the economy to spiral down. Very similar, as Catherine is pointing out, to what's happened now. Uh, now, so we removed some of those restrictions. Removing some of them was not necessarily a bad thing. Part of keeping regulation up with the economy is getting rid of old regulations that no longer make sense. But but the but the the the, uh, the fallacy is thinking that no regulation makes sense, or that if mm-hmm. you do away with this regulation, there might not be something else that you need for these for these new for these new um, uh, derivatives. Now, I think uh, lessons could have been learned from the 1990s, and certainly uh, Japan went through something very similar to this in the 1990s and we didn't learn enough from it. And in part, that's why Japanese, the, the Japanese did not suffer as much uh, in this current uh, economic crisis because they had already made some of the reforms that needed to be remade and they weren't quite as heavily invested in this system. Um, so there definitely were warning signals out there that were ignored. Of course, you know, um, we tend to be a conservative people. We tend to think if there isn't a current problem, just leave it alone. We tend to think that less regulation is, is better uh, and so uh, let them do what they want until it's clear there's a problem. Well, now it's clear there's a problem. So, You know, the, it sounds like the caller uh, uh, is it, remembers the 1990s. Uh, 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 Ken and I certainly do and uh, I think Bob and Mary Catherine, you do too. It was a fantastic decade, at least after about 1992. The economy was growing at unprecedented mm-hmm. rates since, since really the, uh, the, the Second World War. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, uh, it just seemed like it was unstoppable by the uh, mid '90s as we're going towards the end of the '90s. So what Ken says, I think this is a human tendency, but certainly it's an American tendency. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think your question um, is is it's, it's a bothersome uh, uh, question, and that is we as a country we have trouble anticipating. Uh, uh, what's around the corner, especially when times are good. So we were victims of our own success. Well, we are kind of let the good times roll. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and and during the 90s, well, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. We forgot all about that. So, you know. They changed the laws in 1990. They changed the laws at the end of the Clinton administration and took limits off banks, let regular banks get into investing. That's true. That's true. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. That was a mistake. Yep. What about... Uh, Printed default swaps. You yep. think those should be allowed? That's why uh, we got into trouble with AIG. Could naked credit default swaps be allowed, or you can have insurance when you have no financial interest in what's being insured? I actually, I had a discussion about this with a colleague just the other day about insurance when you when you don't have a vested interest, and we couldn't figure out why that is allowed. It's 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 easy to see why you have insurance when you have a vested interest, so that you can offset mm-hmm. risk. But why you allow people that don't have a vested interest in it to 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 create both create risk and then offset it doesn't seem to add anything productive to the economy, and it, in fact increases the risk of the overall uh, economy. And when you look at uh, uh, the recent financial crisis, part of the problem was there was too much risk out there. And so why allow people to create risk that they, that they then fall off on other people? I, I actually would agree with you. I'm not sh- I don't know why we allow that. Hmm. All right. Um, we're going to go to one more call before we take a break because we, we have a lot of people waiting to talk. But hold uh, on. We'll get back to yeah, you. Yeah, we'll get back to you. But let's go to hmm. Ed first. Ed? Hello, Ed. Hi. Go right I have ahead. a two points to make. One is about the uh, credit default swaps and insurance generally. The problem wasn't that AIG sold the insurance. The problem was that they ignored their own actuaries who were telling them that they'd gotten to a point that could destroy the company. It's known in the, in the business as the ruin function. Uh, it can be calculated and you ignore it at your peril. The other is about the bubbles. The tech bubble in the 90s. Oops. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, okay go, go ahead. Go we ahead. lost you for a sec. Okay, the, the housing bubble uh, most recently and the tech bubble in the 90s are both the same problem. And the problem that we face is that neither Democrats nor Republicans are willing to puncture a bubble before it gets out of hand. There is uh, a great literature on this. The, an earlier caller asked about that. Uh, Stiglitz is one of the economists... Uh, Nobel Prize winner who's talked about this. Uh, 
John Kenneth Galbraith used to talk about it. His son, James K. Galbraith, still does. Uh, Stiglitz's most recent book on this is Free Fall. Uh, then we have um, This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly Tracing the History of Bubbles. A Brief, A Short History of Financial Euphoria, John <laughs> Kenneth Galbraith, who said one time when asked about the possibility of a depression that we will not have another depression unless we convince ourselves that it's impossible. And that's what uh, market fundamentalism did, was convince politicians and corporations that they could act as though a depression were impossible, that they could get in the too big to fail so uh, the whole society would have to pay for their risks while they got all the profits. And we still haven't answered the question, when we start to have a bubble and we start shouting down all the people who tell, it, tell you it's a bubble, how do we ever, ever do anything about it? So the uh, only answer I know of is don't start, which is what we did after the Great Depression. We put in sufficient rules to uh, keep it under control for a while. All right. Thanks a lot, Ed. Great comments. Have, hey, the reactions. The uh, actually uh, on both of those points, uh, the speculative bubble. I think you're right that it, it would take a lot of courage on the part of politicians or policymakers to prick a, a speculative bubble before they have to, because it's not pleasant when it when it when it explodes, and and people are kind of just hoping that uh, it, it'll continue as long as they're in office or whatever. And actually, that happens in the market too. And I think that's one of the things that Greenspan would have admitted to that he did not he did not foresee how his policies. We're, we're exacerbating the speculative bubble rather than trying to ease it off. Uh, on AIG, I do think that I, I, kind of on the larger, larger um, note, I, I do think we have a problem with our corporate governance in this country. We get focused too much on the short run and I think AIG as, lo as well as a lot of other corporations including GM – uh, across the board, because of our of our American corporate structure, I think we get too focused on the short run. And the reason for this is we are too wedded to the shareholder value uh, theory of the firm. Mm -hmm. And not that that's necessarily all bad, but management, American management, uh, shareholder, uh, uh, the value of shares is cyclical. Even if you're a good firm, it's going to be cyclical. Managers realize that. And so their best short-run strategy for them to make money is to make some short-run adjustments that are going to drive up shareholder value, cash out and get out and then let the bubble fall apart. And see, to a certain extent, you could say that's what AIG was doing. Uh, so that I think uh, – I don't think that that's the only problem that was going on there. But I do worry that our current model of corporate governance is too focused on the short run and not enough in the long run. You know, Kent, what's uh – uh, I think you really put the, uh, the, the, the focus on the right place, which is the short-run orientation that emerges from the corporate governance and, and that are shaped by the laws. Because if you look to other countries, especially in Europe, uh, it doesn't have to be this way. At least in the last 40 uh, – since World War II, if you look at the cyclical fluctuations in Europe, including this crisis, it was much more severe in this country than it's been in uh, the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark. And they have different corporate governance structures that they don't have such a short-term focus. But then I'd also add, right now, the short-term focus looks bad. But you know, you go back to the 90s or when the good times come again, we're going to call the short-term focus flexibility and ability to take advantage of opportunities in innovative uh, 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 capacity. So in some ways, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. <laughs> well, I, that, that goes back to what you mentioned about – I mean the, the benefits of our system is we are flexible and innovative. The, the problem is, is that we are not – we don't plan for the long run and we aren't stable. And, and, the, and the question, and the question yeah. is, is how to balance those yeah. two. Well, I'd also say I, I'm not going to uh, uh, – blame the caller or, or individuals per se. But I think what's, what's fundamentally different in our country from some of the European countries, ultimately it's incumbent on individuals to understand bubbles and these kind of fluctuations mm -hmm. are inherently part of our economy, our society. So 
it's really incumbent on individuals to understand and therefore act and make decisions to anticipate bubbles, try to get – goes back to the, the caller who said, well, where do I get good information? Because uh, people have to understand we're in a society where there's bubbles, activities and people who make decisions about investments, uh, 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 you know, going into these kind of crazy long-term mortgages, even decisions about where to – uh, uh, put their careers and their jobs where to live. All these things really need to be predicated on. We're in a, a economy society where we've got this 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 bubble nature. You know, I guess this is not new because the uh, the the New England poet Robert Frost uh, uh, decades ago wrote a poem where he said, uh, uh, "For when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far." We should choose something like a star and keep our mind on and be stayed. That is, don't get swept up by the mobs, the bubbles and so on, but have values and make decisions that are long run and very, very careful about fans. Okay, We're going to have to to get swept up in a break here, I think. (laughs) We've been going on uh, um, for about five minutes longer than we normally would, but it's been a fascinating (laughs) – Fascinating conversation. So we're going to ask uh, our callers, Lynn and, and Conrad, to please hold on the phone while we take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone, information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as play and opera reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about uh, President Obama's economic policies and the impact they've had on the state of Indiana. Well, that's sort of what we've been talking about. Um, Joining us in the studio are School of Public and Environmental Affairs, Professor David Audrich and Professor of Labor and Employment Law, Ken Dow-Schmidt. You can join us on the program by calling 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. Our website is wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to get on there and send us an email or any kind of comment. Let's go right back to the phones and Lynn has been patient. Lynn? Hi. Um, hi, Ken. Hi, David. <laughs> hi, Lynn. Uh, it's Lynn Duggan, Labor Studies. Oh, hi, Lynn. Hey. Um, I just wanted to put in a plug here for uh, some other media sources um, because another caller had asked about um, other great minds who have been um, analyzing this crisis. And for a long time now, Dollars and Cents has written about this. That's dollarsandcents.org, as well as the Center for Economic Policy and Research, or Economic and Policy Research, which is CEPR.net, Dean Baker in particular. And um, another good source is EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, and that's epi.org, which puts out the State of Working America. So, um, so, so these are great sources, but nobody knows about them. So this is, I just saw this as a great opportunity to let people know. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate it, Lynn. The, I, I, we're getting a, a great bibliography here among, mm-hmm. among our callers. I actually I, – I, um, I, I, there's so many good things out there to read, but I, I do use the State of Working America in my work. I, so I would I would uh, um, agree with you that that's a great source for information, especially on especially on uh, statistics relevant to uh, working people. Catherine Schiacchitano, Schiacchitano, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. Another labor lawyer has an article coming out in Dollars and Cents right away, and it's on their website uh, now. So so that goes back through the whole history. So I'll okay. just leave you to the show and. and 
Thank you. This okay. is really great. All right. Thanks a lot for the call, Lynn. Thanks for being patient. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-1877-285-9348. The website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Conrad has been patient as well. Conrad? Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, well, I don't know where to start. I could probably discuss <laughs> or argue uh, with you guys for hours on this, but uh, I'm going to limit uh, my comment to two questions. Um, but first, uh, it seems to me that um, uh, what we've seen happen uh, economically is a profound failure of the educational system in this country. Uh, the business leaders, politicians, civil servants, they're all graduates of the elite educational institutions. So clearly there's something very wrong in the way they're being taught. So I have two questions for you. Uh, first, what are each of you specifically going to change in your curriculum and how you teach so you can educate uh, the next generation of leaders to be more circumspect, to be more realistic um, uh, about uh, uh, what they're going to be doing in terms of public and business policy? And second, um, you are professors at such a, an elite institution. Why should we listen to anything you have to say? <laughs> Cut us to the quick. Two, yeah. two university professors here, right to higher education. Uh, as, well, I will have to admit that I am a professor at Indiana University, too. So. <laughs> well, well, it, well, why it, should it, we it, listen to you? I'm in the arts. I'm in music. It takes, right. one, it takes one to know one. You know, in, in terms of the um, – because before I think Ken and, and I had also uh, really pointed the finger at, well, our, our – sector, our industry had dropped the ball in predicting this. On the other hand, I would say I'm not sure that the educational system's totally a failure at all. It's really do you see the glass being half empty or half full? It's really what compared to what? I mean, we've had this uh, major recession. It's painful, but I don't think we ever, or as an institution even, we said we're going to deliver paradise. It'd be like the medical profession hasn't been able to prevent death, hasn't been able to prevent disease. And I'll tell you, I would say, uh, uh, if you look at history uh, historically, certainly the the standard of living um, in this country and in uh, around the world, uh, in the West, in any case, has has still it's it hasn't ever been higher than now. So I don't want to say we've perfected it. But on the other hand, I think that through conversations, discussions, analyses like this, sure, we don't have it down uh, 100%. It's, it's far from it. But on the other hand, it goes back to something that Mary Catherine said. A new generation keeps coming on board. I think one of the great things we do is we give them space. We give them opportunity to make their own contributions. That's what keeps me uh, uh, optimistic. We'll hear from Ken how he's changing. But I'll tell you, how, how do I change? When I – Ken and I are both products actually of, uh, of a Midwest university, another uh, – uh, I appreciate the plug, another elite university, University of Wisconsin. When I studied economics, came out of there, my focus was on macroeconomics, Keynesian economics. It's – and that's what would make the economy, society better. It was all about a stimulus when you had an economic problem, a recession. I don't teach that anymore to my students. What I teach is that places, cities, states, communities, they can't wait for a stimulus to help them. That's probably not going to happen in a global economy. They've got to figure out how to take uh, matters into their own hands and to create the necessary conditions so that they create jobs, growth, prosperity, a sustainable uh, standard of living their own way. So I've totally changed – I'm changing my focus from the macro picture to much more to the local community uh, level. Okay. Yeah. I think the short answer on what I'm going to teach is, is um, back to an old subject of history. I do think I do think the recent history, and especially in light of the Great Depression, is very useful in terms of of uh, people realizing that that we don't always know it all, as David has said, and that we have have to not get complacent. I think uh, that. You know, higher education uh, weren't the only ones that were arrogant about this. I think policymakers were arrogant. I think also um, certainly Wall Street was extremely arrogant about uh, these uh, potential problems. So that uh, um, I would agree with you that that higher education in some ways has uh, uh, at least missed the, the boat on this one. But 
But I, I do think there is value there, as David says. And actually, that's something that we don't think enough about in, in um, Indiana or Bloomington is our value to the world. We have so many foreign students pay to come here uh, to study. And uh, we actually I, – I taught in uh, Shenzhen, China this spring. Uh, we have foreign governments uh, paying for our professors to go overseas. So at least uh, that's some uh, – I guess as, as Stephen Colbert would say, the market has, uh, has decided we're valuable. So, <laughs> but, but we really appreciate that uh, question and comment, right, Conrad. Right. Can, can I make one comment? Absolutely. Please. OK. OK. Because I don't want to eat up any time. But um, <laughs> you know, my view is uh, I just hear a lot of apologists saying, well, you know, boom and bust cycles, that's, uh, that's the way – uh, business goes. We've got to learn from it. Uh, um, uh, you know, it's not really my fault because uh, I believe this and that. But the net result is what we have. And as many callers have mentioned, there are a lot of people making noise about uh, deregulation, about the housing bubble. There were people with just common sense who said this possibly can't exist, but the environment exist where anything could be done about that. So regarding my comment about academics uh, and and your culpability in all of this, they are coming out of your institutions. So I don't think you can really bail on this particular issue. Perhaps you personally are not responsible, but I would say you as a group and the academic institutions are as much responsible for the current crisis and any coming crisis as we're getting because we're not teaching the students the right thing. Mm. So there you have it. All right. Thanks, Conrad. Thanks for taking my call. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, I, I have to say that I hear a lot of teachers talking about how kids don't come to school prepared because their parents aren't doing the job. I mean, a lot of this has to do with ethics, doesn't it? Some, a, lot, a lot of... A lot of some of the decision making that was going on in well, business. Well, right. Has I mean, Ken, Ken, Ken said the arrogance of Wall Street. I think the word I hear more frequently is greed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's just a little, a little aside. Our, our phone number is again eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. The website wfiu dot org slash noon edition. Um, I want to talk about the stimulus package. You've mm-hmm. mentioned it uh, a few times, uh, David. Um, that was obviously one of the very first. Uh, big legislative packages that uh, President Obama had. What's the impact been on Hoosiers? I, I actually um, – well, I don't know if this is too middle of the road. But, but uh, the first stimulus I think was a great idea. Uh, there was some discussion at the time that it wasn't large enough. Uh, it's – when our – when interest rates are basically zero and monetary mm. policy can't be used to stimulate the economy, we have to go to deficit spending. So I, th- I think we had to deficit spend to, to uh, um, improve the economy. I think it worked to the extent that uh, – I think most economic ec- uh, uh, estimates show that the unemployment rate is lower now than it would have been without it. I think it also worked from the perspective that, as I mentioned before, I don't believe we're staring into the abyss the way we were in 2008. So it's – and uh, both of those are – especially the latter I think is very useful. Now, has it uh, completely lowered the unemployment rate? It clearly hasn't. And uh, the question has been raised as to whether we need more stimulus uh, – more of a stimulus package and I actually would support more. Um, I'd like to see uh, some spending on long-term – more spending on long-term projects. I'd like to see more spending on education, both because um, those things would help put jobs in the United States and, and prevent us from laying off teachers who we, we need, uh, but also because that benefits the young people who are the ones uh, that this debt is going to be uh, incurred in, in the name of. I also think that you could do um, some tax cuts. Although I would do more t- targeted tax cuts. I think if you just do across the board tax cuts or tax cuts for wealthy people like during the Bush administration, we're just going to go out and buy more junk from China. But if you did tax cuts that lowered um, uh, uh, um, the uh, employment tax uh, – taxes on em- employees that employers pay on employees – or uh, if you did uh, tax cuts that uh, in, encouraged businesses t- uh, to undertake new investments, I think that could help create jobs. There's actually a fair amount of cash sitting out uh, with uh, big business now in this country right now. And what we need to do is just encourage them that the economy is going to be stable enough that they should invest in uh, – make new investments. And I think that uh, uh, tax cuts in that regard could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really gets to a crux of, a, of uh, the matter. Uh, uh, what's been the impact of the stimulus – should we – do we need uh, additional stimulus? Uh, Ken's uh, take on this is he's in good company, great company. A uh, previous caller mentioned a Nobel Prize winner, Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, uh, Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winner and also prominent com- uh, columnist, 
is very st- a strong advocate that uh, we didn't have enough of a stimulus and we need much a much bigger uh, additional stimulus given the size of the economy. I, I would I agree with Ken uh, one and, and Krugman in any case on one important point is the short run impact of the stimulus we've had on Indiana in particular. We have a lower unemployment rate today than we would have had without the stimulus. Mm-hmm. The question is compared to what? The stimulus, especially that word stimulus, that's all about a short-run quick fix to stop the bleeding. Well, what's the long-run policy? This concerns me because the the discussion, the policy debates, both from the Republicans and the the Democrats are really about this kind of short-run quick fix um, when we've got this long-run question that led us to this problem in the first place. Uh, uh, it's predicated by we're no longer – and I mentioned this before. We're no longer a, a big country independent in the, uh, in, in the world as we were after World War II. We're now actually a relatively small country in a big world. And the, this is what makes it the difficulty with the stimulus because when we had stimulus out of – in the Great Depression, people spent more – uh, the created jobs that got us back uh, uh, going again pretty pretty strong. Now the problem is the rest of the world has gotten used to waiting for American stimulus. They're sitting there with productive capacity and waiting to sell goods and services to us. As soon as the demand's created here, yes, people will spend money in America, but they'll also spend money very naturally based on what's created in the rest of the world. So that We've got this problem. The stimulus is no longer – it costs us an awful lot in terms of deficit to create jobs that are going to be relatively short run at which point the, for me the issue becomes what are we doing in terms of long run investment that's going to help make us competitive to create sustainable jobs and that's when Ken says he'd like to see an emphasis on education in particular and infrastructure. I would just close and say – you know, I wouldn't – I'm not comfortable calling that stimulus. I call that investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that the – in fact, there was something on the news just today about an investment that had been made as, uh, as a result of uh, Obama's stimulus um, package, a, a significant investment in Kokomo that um, was designed entirely. I mean, of course, there was benefit to the people who uh, built out this structure, but then um, the long term then is that this is going to employ more people um, and better position that community in the long run. Mm-hmm. So did, well, did, here we'll blame maybe not the media per se because <laughs> we know we're going to get to that. But in some ways, <laughs> and in some ways, it does come from uh, uh, we've been too quick to use this this label stimulus mm-hmm. that has all kinds of thrown in. Stuff thrown in. Some of it's very well, it, short term. It paints right. a picture of something flaming out. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think you know we we haven't mentioned it on here today, but the stimulus funds, including a great deal of stabilization money for the public schools. So you know we did stories on this not too long ago, and and J T. Koopman has talked about it. Uh, I think at the end of 2011, a lot of that stabilization money is going to go away. And the problems that we're seeing in the Monroe County Community School Corporation and other school corporations around the state are going to be much more severe than they are right now because that federal money has been propping them up Mm -hmm. through – and again, that's been part of the impact of this economic policy. Well, that that brings it into Indiana too. I mean I think you're right that we are a microcosm for what's been happening in the nation as a whole and and you're absolutely right that – see, those were – teachers who were productively employed when the economy was going and we were glad to pay their salaries. In fact, they're a great deal with, with, with uh, how low their salaries are. But, but when revenues dropped and we all of a sudden have these budget deficits, now at least the state government is obligated to balance the budget and, and uh, uh, lay some of these people off. And this is exactly the time when we shouldn't be laying them off. We should, we should be maintaining them. So the, this idea of revenue sharing and actually you know, that's an old idea that, that's been done at least since Nixon. Uh, uh, this idea of revenue sharing from the federal to the state to maintain states uh, uh, during uh, sh- uh, short-run uh, um, economic crises like this is something that should be done. Now, you may not want to subsidize everything the states are doing. I mean, clearly, California was out of control before the recession, and and you're not going to want to prop up what was out of control there before. But but uh, certainly, maintaining productive 
uh, teachers in Indiana, I think, is, some, is, is a worthy project for uh, uh, the, the Obama administration. We're, we're down to three minutes to go in the program. I, I just want to mention a couple of other things because I think before the show we talked about this a little bit. But health care reform, it's a, certainly something that's, that's already passed and happened. And energy policy, which is something that uh, you know, the, the president has been talking about a great deal. Could you just talk for a minute about how those things um, – sort of intersect with the economy as a whole, David? Yeah, uh, I think it's – everybody knows this country has a higher sh- share of GDP that's spent on health care mm-hmm. than any, other, any place in the, in the world. The question is can we get at least a level of quality and services but mm-hmm. I, preferably better delivery at lower cost? That's going to help the economy. Same thing with the energy. I think that many people, myself included, have the sense – when we look around the world, we think we see people – countries that are getting better quality price combinations. Uh, it's like seeing your neighbor get a better car at a lower price. You think, hey, maybe I need to go to that, car, that <laughs> right, lot too. Right. Yeah, I, I think there is an intersection there. Um, I think in some ways the financial crisis has brought out uh, kind of the, the worst of the old system and, and, and uh, we haven't changed the new system yet. So we'll see how the new system does with it. I know my brother-in-law lost his job and lost his insurance and, and is maintaining health insurance just based on COBRA and the COBRA extensions that, that uh, Obama uh, uh, got through. Uh, and his daughter has since been uh, diagnosed with diabetes. So they, they really can't lose that health insurance. Otherwise, uh, she'll have a pre-existing condition and under the old system, she'll be uninsurable. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think you, you saw this with the Monroe County uh, School Corporation where they wanted people to move to early retirement. And the question was, what would they do for health insurance? If we had mm-hmm. uh, a national health insurance, if everybody had health insurance, uh, that would have been as big of a problem as it was and it would have made the transition to retirement easier for some of those people. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we are out of time. It's been a fascinating discussion. Hopefully we can do it again in maybe six months or so and see how things are going then. Hope you'll come back. Yeah, yeah hope you'll come back. Well, we, I, I want to thank our guests today, uh, Professor David Aldrich and, and law professor Ken Dow-Schmidt. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.